This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. I have cervical cancer from an infection, human papillomavirus. Who knew HPV could lead to certain cancers? Who knew my risk for HPV would increase as I got older? Who knew that there was something that could have helped protect me from HPV when I was 11 or 12, way before I would even be exposed to it? Did you know, Mom? Dad? It does suck, like, not being able to play sports anymore. Because I did, I did do a lot of sports. It's my favorite. This is an MJ2. What it does is basically it goes up my nose and down my throat, and it goes past my stomach into my jejunum, or the first part of the small intestine, because my stomach is completely paralyzed. She got the third shot. Within two weeks, she was hospitalized. And she remained hospitalized for eight solid months. So they put her on an immunosuppressant and an uh, intraconocell, which is an antifungal medication. This is what it looks like to be on guard after the aftermath of it. And this is just one bag. We got about 15 more at home. After all the struggles and fights, and we thought she was finally getting a little better. She went to sleep. She wasn't feeling good during the day. And I went in to check on her. And she looked like she was very still. She was in her bed. And she had passed away. And I tried to revive her. But she was gone. I loved her so much. I wanted to give her my life. Sure, let me just take a drink. Mm. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the Battle of Ideas. Wow, Lehman McHenry, all the way in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I found that to be enormously offensive because <clears throat> it's a fear-mongering tactic and it's meant to instill guilt in parents for failing to give their children the Gardasil Gardasil vaccine. Um, and it, I just happen to be working on this case right now. In fact, I've worked on it for the past two years with some of the best experts in the world. And it is deeply troubling how that was promoted uh, and how they attempted to get it mandated around the world and how they suppressed all of the harms that that vaccine did to some people at least. Uh, and so the second half of that clip um, very familiar with that as well. Very much like the clients that we have today who are in a wheelchair for the rest of their lives. Um, emeritus Professor of Philosophy at California State University, am I right? Correct, yes. What is a bioethicist? Well, it's uh, just a subspecialty of ethics that concentrates on medical issues. So, for example, I'll teach a course at university on bioethics, and I'll typically have uh, students who are considering medical school or nursing, mm -hmm. and um, we focus on mainly sort of beginning of life and end of life issues. So bioethics typically includes all of those very sort of 
troubling sorts of ethical decisions that physicians encounter and having to make those life and death decisions, um, you know, like abortion and euthanasia. Uh, and, but it also includes very important uh, considerations like, like informed consent for patients. Um, and I've added to that a sort of sub-subspecialty having to do with research ethics in medicine, where I concentrate on uh, what are our obligations in conducting uh, sound research, mm. not research that is that is commercially corrupted. And, and so a, a certain part of my course deals with um, those issues, those ethical responsibilities of researchers and doctors when they enter into arrangements to do clinical trials so i bought this book uh the illusion of evidence-based medicine i strongly recommend everybody buy that book it's on amazon so <laughs> the, book, the book is written with a co-author i should acknowledge the very important work of dr john giardini who's a psychiatrist in australia uh, he's, he's rather famous for his criticisms of the pharmaceutical industry and um the over prescribing of psychiatric drugs for children let's just let's just make something clear because i think a conversation like this has a tendency to to create the incorrect perception this is not anti-medicine this kind of conversation uh, it's not it's not anti-science it's none of those things it's merely a critique of certain facets am i right that's a very important point i'm so glad you made that um you know, I mean, it's it's almost like being characterized as an anti-vaxxer just because you have criticisms of a particular vaccine. Mm. Well, similarly, uh, what we're trying to do is make medicine more honest and more transparent yeah. by exposing all of the flawed methods by which uh, pharmaceutical industry will corrupt medicine. Um, so the book that I just showed you um, it defends a thesis, uh, and the thesis is that um, we need desperately to have some kind of oversight with regard to scientific integrity in the way in which we uh, conduct and report clinical trials, the testing of medicines. And at present, given that the clinical trials are mostly conducted by the pharmaceutical industry testing their own products. Let me say that again. The pharmaceutical industry testing its own products. It sounds like the words are absurd coming whoa, out whoa, of my whoa, mouth. Whoa. The pharmaceutical, I'm going to say it now, the pharmaceutical industry testing its own products. Right. This is, this is the fundamental flaw and um, failure of government to, to regulate properly. Um, so the book includes not only the, the ways in which the, 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 met, the data gets corrupted in uh, how it's reported to the medical community, but it also includes all of the ways in which you've got um, different uh, elements that are co-opted into this agenda, like academics, universities, um, what are called medical communications companies, 
and government regulators. So all of that is covered in our book to sort of expose all of the players that maintain the status quo in the system. The pharmaceutical industry tests its own products. They conduct clinical trials, they design the trials, they, they conduct them, they report the trials, and um, there's this basic concept of, of, of their intellectual property. They own the data, and so they are able to sort of disseminate the data as they please, since it's their intellectual property. Okay, so here's the, the real source of the problem here. Um, now, what Dr. Giardini and I found as consultants for a Los Angeles law firm called Baum, Hedlund, Aristi, and Goldman is that in examining all of the documents that are disclosed in litigation, what we found is thousands and thousands of emails, study reports, um, all kinds of correspondence with um, academic investigators that sort of showed us a behind the scenes picture of what's really going on here. And, it's, and it was very shocking and disturbing to me because I had this basic sense of trust in medical science and I had a basic sense of, of trust in the reliability of medical journals. In fact, I thought medical journals must be the most scientifically sound and yeah. rigorous journals we have given that doctors have to rely upon them uh, to, to make, make prescribing uh, decisions. Uh, and, and it turns out just the opposite is, is, is the case, that all of this is constructed with marketing messages and PR firms, public relations firms, that these pharmaceutical companies engage to promote a picture of safety and efficacy of their products. So what looks like science, especially as it appears in the medical journals and the way in which it appears at medical conferences and in uh, continuing medical education, behind the scenes is all constructed by a good deal by the marketing departments of pharmaceutical companies that are simply promoting their products and um, attempting to discredit their competitors. So when you talk, talk about the lab laboratory testing, uh, you know, this, this would include how molecules are developed, right? But it, what I'm talking about mainly is the clinical trials, and the clinical trials is how we go through different phases of testing right. okay. uh, to get regulatory approval. And, and so that's what Dr. Giardini and I mainly focused on in our book. We focused on two clinical trials in psychiatry, both of which were attempting to demonstrate the safety and efficacy of, of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitor antidepressants for children. Uh, and these were colossal failures, yet they manipulated the data uh, in such a way as to make these negative trials look positive and to actually publish these in medical journals and again in other forms like mm. conference presentations and continuing medical education. And so the, one of the ways that they do that is they co-opt academics to come on board with their agenda. So the pharmaceutical companies basically know, you know, like the tobacco companies or the chemical companies, that nobody trusts us, 
of course, nobody's going to believe us. We don't have any credibility. However, Dr. So-and-so uh, at prestigious university, he is someone who is known and trusted. And if he is the mouthpiece for the marketing messages, now you have credibility. And if he or she is the first author on a paper that's published in a medical journal yes. from a prestigious university, that is a form of branding. The branding, in a sense, connecting mm. their product with the prestige of this academic and his or her university affiliation. That is a very, very powerful marketing tool, and they exploit it to the maximum. There's a lot of planning behind the scenes as to how they're going to um, promote this, this drug. Uh, so, so they go through different phases the first phase might be uh, to focus on um, the necessity of treating some kind of disease that has been unrecognized before. Uh, so they're going to first of all flood the market with these messages about the, the you know the importance of this of this disease that has been uh, underdiagnosed and undertreated. What you just showed just a moment ago mm. for the Gardasil ad is a perfect example of this, right? Um, then they're going to uh, start to introduce the drug. Okay, so first they introduce the disease, right? Promote promote the the concept, and then they hold on, hold on, hold on. Sorry, sorry. I'm just I need to quickly interject. When you say introduce the disease, must it be yeah. real or can it also be fake? It could, yeah, both, yeah. Uh, now, in, in, in either case, uh, you know, if it's an actual disease, you know, let's say it's di diabetes, right? Um, they're, they're not inventing diabetes, but uh, in, in the lots of other cases, uh, I think something like uh, promoting, you know, drugs for something called restless leg syndrome or promoting drugs for people who are shy, uh, that starts to get into the area of mm. disease mongering. And, and so what you're typically going to have is, is these marketing messages that, that, that begin with um, the disease or the alleged disease. All right, so, so then they're gonna conduct clinical trials. They're going to bring in uh, academics as, as their principal investigators to uh, do the clinical trials, and they may be done at different universities at different sites around the world. Uh, then they're going to bring in uh, the PR companies to start doing the marketing messages, and they bring in what's called medical communications companies. Medical communications companies are very important. They are a um, subspecialty of uh, public relations that just focuses on communications and medicine. And they are the ones that will typically uh, put together a package for the pharmaceutical company in terms of how they're going to disseminate their marketing messages in medical journals, continuing medical education, mm. conference proceedings, so on and so forth. I, I was thinking of um, when Steve Jobs once upon a time said something to the tune of I'm going to bring out a product that people don't know they want yet. 
is there any is there any kind of similarity there absolutely give me a second uh, perfect there it is i want to promote this book as a fantastic example of what you've just said it is selling sickness by ray moynihan and alan cassells right. and all of the chapters of this book are filled with very very dubious disease concepts that began their life in marketing departments. Now, at the very beginning of this book, there's they are recounting an interview with the CEO of Merck, the pharmaceutical company. And he says, in just the sort of offhanded remark, you know, the trouble with the pharmaceutical company that I have been uh, uh, CEO of is that we've been selling drugs to sick people. What we really need to do is sell drugs to healthy people. <laughs> now we've extended the market enormously. What we need to do is sell drugs just like we sell bubble gum. There it is. There's no difference then, is there? It's a product. Well, in, in terms of marketing, no. Um, now, you know, when it comes to medicine, though, we're talking right. about life and death decisions. We're talking about uh, pr problems of serious adverse events that some people suffer as a result of, you know, being on these medications. Mm. And, and, the, and the main problem is when those adverse events have been suppressed in some way by the pharmaceutical industry and the medical communications company that's, that's, that's promoting this, um, now you've got a serious problem, and this is where the law firm comes in, because uh, what we find is people who have been seriously harmed by drugs um, or vaccines, and we file suit, we, we then get access to all their internal documents, and what we're talking about millions of, of, of documents that are confidential. We, we examine these documents, we put together what we call the theory, of how it is that uh, that our clients were harmed by their reckless behavior, intentional, mm. intentionally reckless behavior in, in many cases. Um, and then we go to court and, and we battle it out. Uh, our experts against their experts and, and we uh, attempt to sort of prove, prove our theory. Now, I'll just mention one other important thing. Uh, the law firm I work for is devoted to getting these documents released to the public. Many law firms won't do that. They will, they will litigate the case, and that's the end of it. Or when they settle it with the pharmaceutical companies, the, the documents just disappear with the settlement. But Bomb Headland does not do that. We insist along the way that these documents be released to the public because of the serious health concerns that that uh, that are raised by these these drugs um, so this is called the de-designation process when the documents are designated confidential uh, we then are able to go to the judge and and show the judge these in incriminating documents mm -hmm. That, that show how they manipulated the results and how they hid the harms. And the judge will most of the time agree with us and release these to the public. 
And that's where I come in because then I'll take the, take these documents that have been released and I'll do something like write a book yeah, or publish an article in the medical journal with the other experts on the case, like Dr. Giardini. What we have is evidence-based medicine, which in my opinion is one of the greatest achievements of modern medicine. It came about in the late 1990s, Canadian researchers who created this concept of a hierarchy of evidence, what is the most trusted from the least trusted, and, and at the top of the apex is the uh, placebo-controlled randomized trials. Um, then, you know, we get various levels of other kinds of studies that have certain degrees of reliability, you know, all the way down to the bottom, you know, the prescribing experience of a single physician or some, something of that sort. Um, so when I talk about the illusion of evidence-based medicine, it's, it's this concept that the randomized clinical trials are the most trusted. Mm. Well, they can't be the most trusted if, if 90% of them are being conducted by the pharmaceutical industry. And there's a very, very high incentive for them to cheat at every level along the way. Um, ghostwriting is a part of this. Ghostwriting is, is, is something I, I first discovered when I began to work for the law firm. Um, one of the lawyers I was working for just gave me three boxes of documents. And he said, here, read the complaint and go home and read these documents and tell me what you think about the case. So I did this and the box was full of all these medical journal articles on the, on the, the problem of withdrawal of SSRI antidepressants. And, and so I read all of these documents and I came back to him and I, and I said, you know, I don't think you have a case at all here. And it's because all of the medical literature um, is fundamentally against the, ver the basic premise of your litigation. And he said, all of that is ghostwritten. And it was, you know, this sort of uh, turning point in my life. You know, when you think of a moment of your life where something really changed you and changed you in a really profound way, that, you know, suddenly the light bulb went off uh, and, and you sort of start to see the world in a whole different way. And in this case, sort of realizing that, that those medical journal articles that, that I was thinking were, were based on sound science were really began life in a marketing department and they were doing nothing but trying to discredit their competitors' drugs and hide a serious adverse event, which was withdrawal from, from a drug called paroxetine in this case. So the two drugs um, that we examine in great detail are both SSRI antidepressants. One is paroxetine and the other one is citalopram. So to get back to ghostwriting, um, now what I discovered in uh, basically a period of something like 15 years of, of examining these confidential documents and litigation, which were subsequently released, right? Because I still can't talk about the confidential ones. All I can talk about is the ones that have been released. Um, what, what I found was that pharmaceutical companies regularly engage ghostwriters either internally or uh, 
as a part of the medical communications companies. And what the ghostwriters do is they, they take the data that's been submitted to them from the statisticians and they have templates that they work from to create medical journal articles. They write the first draft of the article based upon uh, what the marketing messages are and what the, what the statisticians have produced in terms of the data from the clinical trials. Now, what then happens is, is that they then go through about 10 or 11 drafts of the manuscript. They keep refining it. They send it to the people who are identified as the so-called authors on the paper. Now, the writer of the paper and the author of the paper uh, are two different persons. And this doesn't make any sense at all, except in the world of medical communications where a writer and an author are, is a completely different concept altogether, right? The writer is, is the ghostwriter, the person who actually produces the drafts of the manuscript, and the author is the, pap- is the person who reviews what the ghostwriter has done. And for a fee, you know, let's say a few thousand dollars, something like that, agrees to put his or her name on the paper. That is so corrupt. Exactly. And, and, that, and that's what I said before when, when, you know, the light bulb goes off and you realize your whole world has changed when you see that that's going on. Now, the ghostwriting is, is various degrees um, depending upon what the project is. So it can, it can be from a scale, like I said before, the worst cases is where you know a doctor is simply paid to put his name on this paper or you know the doctor has done some revisions along the way um, or the doctor has you know done some kind of major revision of the paper but the trouble with all of these is that the marketing messages are planted at the very beginning by the ghostwriter just to just to clarify this is this is not small scale. This is large scale. Large scale. So I'm glad you mentioned that because it was small scale. Let's say something like the very first cases I ever discovered of this were just the one-off kind of paper. Amazingly, um, it was a case of thalidomide, you know, the, the drug that women took pregnant women took for, I think, nausea. Uh, and it turns out that, that you know, this created this whole generation of thalidomide babies with, you know, just without limbs. The main article that was published on the safety of thalidomide was ghostwritten. A pharmaceutical executive um, had a physician put his name on this paper. All of this is, is, is detailed at the very beginning of my book in chapter one. Mm. Now, this, this also happens about the time where the tobacco industry was having to fight back against claims that their products cause cancer and increasing threats of litigation and increasing threats of regulation. The 
the tobacco industry created the playbook that eventually became one that's used by chemical industries, by food industries, food additive industries, by the pharmaceutical industries. And that, and that was, you know, that we're not credible. So the only way we're going to gain credibility is we, we co-op these other people, right, who have credibility into our agenda and they, they do the bidding for us. Um, and that's, you know, that's a very important component of the ghostwriting that, that these, that these are trusted individuals whose, whose names are on these, on these papers. Um, there've been so many of these ghostwriting scandals, um, that, you know, I could go on a whole hour just about that, but it, what's particularly alarming about it is that when Dr. Giardini and I discovered just the extent to which these academics had had almost nothing to do with these papers that were published in their names. We then go to the medical journals and, and give them the evidence and go to the editors and complain and insist that they retract these fraudulent, fraudulent papers. And the response that we basically got was silence. And is this happening at the peer review level? Yes. Yes. Now, 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 peer review is very important. You know, it's one of the most important aspects of uh, reliability in science, of guaranteeing, you know, some kind of quality control here. <clears throat> but these ghostwriters are so good that they can even fool peer review. The peer reviewers don't know. But sometimes these problems do come up in peer review and they're overridden by the editors of the journal. And I think they're overridden by the editors of the journal because the journals depend heavily on the revenue from the pharmaceutical companies. Uh, okay. Especially, especially in advertising. Advertising alone br makes those journals enormously wealthy. So is there some compromising happening here? with the journals well they will say that there's a firewall between the editorial and the business aspect of the journals but that's not what i've seen because whenever we have discovered just indisputable fraud with regard to uh, how the data was manipulated in the paper through the ghostwriter and you present it to the journal um Either they 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 write back and um, you know say something to the effect of mind your own business, <laughs> or they don't reply at all. I mean, in some respects, the ghostwriter just it may innocently be just sort of saying, okay, I'm relying on the data that 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 the company has given me, right, and I'm just going to write this up in in uh, uh, an honest way as I can. I mean, so, so so some of these people they call themselves medical writers, not ghostwriters, right, right? and. They see themselves as doing a service because doctors don't write very well. They say we're mm. great writers, right? Let us do the writing. You know, do doctors don't have time to do that kind of right. stuff. Okay. Right. Okay. So the intentions are good. It's it's to use the best methodology as possible yeah. to be as convincing yeah. as possible and to get it through the peer review process because that, of course, right. is the that's the epitome yeah. of of good science. 
That's right. That's but right. there's a, but, but okay. Yes, go on. Um, what what starts to happen over a time, especially with ghostwriters who become whistleblowers, is they themselves start to doubt what they're doing. They themselves start to sort of or see harm in the patients as a result of a drug like paroxetine, and they start to have a guilty conscience. And they quit and they blow the whistle. They come out and they say, okay, here's, here's what I did as 10 years as a ghostwriter. And I made a lot, a lot of money and I lived an exciting life. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that uh, I was being manipulated by these other people who, these, these other forces that were uh, making sure that the manuscript was on message. Because you mentioned money, and one of the aspects of money is reprints. Yes. Well, that's becoming less and less important in this day and time because of um, the web and um, what's what what you get is a sort of immediate access to an article mm. uh, as opposed to it hiding behind a paywall, right, and having to pay for it. Uh, and it's somebody paying that fee to make it open, open access. So more and more these days, what you're getting is the pharmaceutical companies are paying the fee for open access. But in the old days, um, reprints brought in pharmaceutical companies, um, sorry, reprints brought in medical journals enormous amounts of money because um, if you had a clinical trial for a blockbuster drug that um, you was was allegedly positive and it was published in this medical journal article the the pharmaceutical company might buy a few million copies of it for their sales reps to go distribute to the doctors on their detailing uh ventures and so each one of those reprints uh, became an enormous source of revenue. So aside from aside from um, advertising, just just drug adverts, right, which are very often right next to the clinical trials, glossy four or five pages, this sort mm. of thing does that brings in an enormous revenue. The reprints issue or the uh, open access payments, and finally a continuing medical education. So medical journals also sponsor continuing medical education. And that's another way that they get money from the pharmaceutical companies. Because even though continuing medical education is meant to be completely independent and objective, it's very often sponsored by the pharmaceutical companies just promoting their own products. So all of this is connected. And this is how the medical journals make money. Yeah. And this is how they get corrupted. The pharmaceutical companies will sometimes create these fake journals to promote their phony uh, phony diseases and, um, and, it, and so you know by the time by the time you know that that, 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 that the drug is made you know it's billions of dollars um, they've got their money and they've they, they discontinued the journal but then but this has happened yeah i don't mean to say that everything in the medical journals is corrupted i don't mean to say that everything in the medical journals is fraudulent 
it's been produced by medical communication companies and ghostwriters. That's not true. The, the question here is how do you discern the difference between mm. the, the fraudulent and the genuine when the fraudulent is designed to look exactly like the genuine? That's my problem. Because nobody knows exactly the prevalence mm. of um, ghostwritten articles published in the medical journals. I mean, I think it's highly suspect when you've got uh, a disclosure at the end of the paper that says that this research was sponsored by pharmaceutical company X or Y, or Professor so-and-so has received uh, fees, speaking fees from pharmaceutical X or Y. Uh, what you'll also see from time to time is that is a disclosure that says something to the effect of, we thank um, so-and-so for uh, editorial assistance on the manuscript. Mm. Uh, and that's, that's acknowledging that that there was a ghostwriter. So editorial assistance is, is this is the person who wrote the first draft of the manuscript. Now, as a result of a lot of these scandals, the medical journals are starting to tighten up a little bit. They're starting to require more of these disclosures. And it's getting a little bit tougher for the pharmaceutical companies to get these ghostwritten manuscripts published in the journals. Uh, every once in a while, they get caught red-handed. Uh, but for the most part, the, the pharmaceutical company is, is like I said, it's like the, you know, the, the Idra in Greek mythology, you know, you, you cut mm. off one head and it just grows three more. They're superb at maneuvering around whatever sort of regulations or policies are, are, are thrown at them. It does sound, though, uh, if, if you don't mind me being a little bit uh, cynical here, but it does sound like you're elevating the editors of journals to some sort of bastion of morality. Um, are they also not susceptible to being bought or being corrupted? Well, that's very unclear to me, and I was always puzzled about this whenever I would write to the uh, editors of the medical journals, you know, just innocently sort of saying, are you aware that uh, uh, such and such an article being ghostwritten and such and such an article, you know, seriously misrepresenting the data? And um, I got a reply from, from one journal editor who was the, the editor of the, the premier journal in child psychiatry. It's called... Um, the JAACAP, Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry. And she said to me, it's not the job of the editor to police the journals. And, and I just found this sort of just profound in the sense mm. that, well, who's, whose job is it then uh, to, to do that? And when I brought this to your attention, you still do nothing about it? Uh, now, I know other medical journal editors, like the, the editor of the British Medical Journal, Fiona God Godley, or Richard Smith, or, or, or Richard, um, sorry, I'm blanking on his name at the moment, uh, the editor of The Lancet, who uh, have strongly come out and, and have condemned ghostwriting, and, and themselves claim that they're unclear about the degree to which the articles published in the journals are ghostwritten. 
So well, I mean, it's not all mulatto girls editors that, that fall into this, this pattern. Uh, some of them, I think, are mm. deeply concerned and have tried to do something about it. So the, Richard Horton is yeah. the name I'm looking for, the editor of The Lancet. I think, I think the situation is um, very confusing, even you know for, for the top researchers in the field who are trying to sort out what is reliable and what is not reliable. Uh, and, and I mean, that's particularly true right now with regard to to the situation with with the, the vaccine and COVID, mm. we're in the yeah. middle. We're in the middle of this, trying to make sense of it, and and there are all these competing narratives and all these conflicting uh, uh, results of science, and you know it's, it's just enormously confusing trying to sort it out. Now, mind you, it took us something like fifteen years to write this book and to do all of the research that was necessary to write this book. So, yeah. uh, you know, when, when you think about that, you think about how much time it took for the dust to settle, so to speak, to get some clarity in order to uh, see just exactly to what extent the data was being misrepresented. This, this goes all the way back mm. to, you know, looking at these clinical trial reports that are sometimes 3,000 pages long. But who has the expertise and the time to do that? Well, my co-author, Dr. Giardini, knows how to do that. Uh, and so once we got access to that kind of data, we were able to sort of compare it with the published article and see the striking difference in the way in which the data was pre presented by the ghostwriter and the data that was presented in the clinical trial report. And those clinical trial reports, again, are the confidential property of the pharmaceutical companies. It's very, very seldom do they get released. Uh, so when you talk about, you know, what's reliable and what's not reliable with, well, for us, it, you know, it's, it's, it's going through them one at a time and exposing which ones are not reliable. And that's, and we only, we're talking about a very small uh, uh, so sort of subset of the universe that, that have just happened to come to our attention through mm. litigation where we have had enormous harms, again, like withdrawal from paroxetine or suicide-induced uh, paroxetine cases, that, that sort of thing. I'll mention one other thing. There's um, a brilliant idea that was, that was introduced a few years ago by a, um, a researcher at the University of Maryland called Peter Doshi. He mm. became an editor for the British Medical Journal and he introduced what's called the RIAD, uh, Restoring Invisible and Abandoned uh, Trials. And this initiative was meant to inspire researchers to first of all identify very questionable clinical trials that have been published in the medical journals and then do exactly what Dr. Giardini and I did, uh, which is to demand access to the data and then do a reanalysis of the data and see if you got um, the same results as the results that were actually published in the medical journal. Uh, this, and, and if something like this were to be implemented on a very large scale, I'm confident that sort of one after another, we would find that most of these industry trials have been enormously misrepresented. How does this extend to universities? 
Good question. Good. It's just like the question about medical journals. I think that it's the lure or it's the dependence on that on that money, that revenue, that that. Um, so in the case of universities, whenever they enter into these agreements for sponsored research to conduct sponsored research, they're dancing with the devil because universities are supposed to be the guardians of truth and the moral conscience of society. I mean, they may fail in that regard, but at least in principle, universities should devote themselves to those ideals. As a matter of fact, um, when when the universities get involved with uh, pharmaceutical companies and when their academics become spokespersons for those products, you're, you're no longer dealing with in the realm of science anymore where, where, where people are being dis, disinterested observers on a hypothesis. They are now out there promoting. They're out now out there um, being what are, what are called product champions for the company. And, and as far as I'm concerned, they've lost, they've lost their credibility as scientists once they start to do that. Who is watching out for the integrity of science? Yeah, who guards the guardians? Who's the guardian here, right? Because it doesn't look like the universities are doing it, and it doesn't look like the government is doing it. You know, it's people like Peter Doshi. The final chapter of my book is about solutions. So, you know, we wanted, we wanted to end on a positive note, and um, we started off with all these various attempted solutions, which only had a limited degree of success, including Peter Doshi's riot idea. Um, all of them were flawed in various ways until we finally sort of came to the final recommendation, which was simply an endorsement of an idea that's already been proposed by other people like Marsha Angel, who's the former editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and um, Sheldon Krimsky at Tufts University, so the idea was to completely remove the testing from the hands of the pharmaceutical companies. You know, they may sort of um, design the molecules for the Me Too drugs or whatever it might, might be, but remove testing from their control. The testing has to be done by independent bodies with no commercial interest in the results. Uh, this sounds like it's just such a common sense, obvious idea, why hasn't it been taken up? At least in the United States, the pharmaceutical industry has the largest lobby. Yeah, They are paying the political campaigns for the political campaigns and they expect something in return. And so what they get in return is favorable legislation to their industry. And what they get in return is, you know, ignoring ideas like this what do you i think you know what, what i'm going to ask you how I do you I do. how do you think one should approach this particular vaccine that's being touted absolutely oh. everywhere right now well I, i'm i'm not an expert in this and um so it's very difficult for me to offer an opinion on it but from all of the research that i've done uh in 17 years now of, of looking at 
with the pharmaceutical industry with a very critical eye, I'm enormously skeptical about anything new. I'm much more trusting of something if it's been on the market, let's say 20 or 30 years, and you've got a, you know, a, a pretty good idea post-marketing how a drug or a vaccine has performed. You know, so my, I myself had the shingles vaccine not too long ago, and I was fairly confident in the reliability of that. So I think that you, you know, you take your risk um, no matter what medical treatment you agree to. And in this case, you've, you really have to weigh the, the consequences on both sides, you know, the, the, the disease versus the drug or the disease versus the vaccine. And it's enormously difficult at the moment to try to assess that, again, because of all of the noise out there, uh, that the contradictory conclusions and competing narratives and everything. So I'm, I myself am, am very skeptical about, about anything new that's been promoted. And, and my, my friends around me are challenging me every day yes. about uh, and, and um, you know, so the idea is that but this is an emergency situation and you've got to do your bit to contribute to herd immunity. Don't you see? It's your moral obligation. So, so the pressure is enormous. But I, but I want to say, you know, what evidence can I rely on here that's decisive? And that's the tricky bit. Lehman, in front of you, there is a crystal ball. What do you see? You mean in terms of the future? You can interpret it however you want. Well, I hope that my book is is enormously influential, and the light bulb goes off for all these other people too, you know. And they and they're not as gullible uh, for you know being taken in by these these marketing messages. Now, I I also give lectures um, at hospitals and university medical centers. There's only a very few that will have me, mind you, mm. but the ones that will have me are on to them and they know that something was wrong here. And so I have actually seen uh, some wonderful developments in that regard. I teach a course at Temple University Medical School every year uh, to residents in psychiatry, basically warning them about uh, the very sorts of things that we've discussed today. And, and that's very helpful to me to sort of see that and to see, you know, the same kind of shock that they have when they're presented with these documents in black and white. I actually show them the documents and walk them through them uh, where it's, it's undeniable. So as far as my crystal ball is concerned, I mean, I hope to see a lot more of this kind of activity in the future where this, this is exposed mm. and, and eventually the medical journals and the universities and the regulators see that we're we're in serious need of reforms just for the sake of protecting science is the peer review process broken well i think it's the best we have uh, but it's certainly flawed in all kinds of ways one way in which it is flawed is that it's subject to industry manipulation and I saw this in its worst with Monsanto and the toxicology journals. Monsanto was uh, asked to, to do peer reviews of their own products 
Uh, there you go. Now, what did they do? And, uh, and something else phenomenal came out of all of this. They actually ghost wrote the peer review reports. So the peer review report would be on one person's name, but that person had actually dis distributed the manuscript to his or her colleagues. They had actually written the peer review report and it was submitted under that person's name to the editor. Unbelievable. Um, so, you know, when you see things like that, you, you would say, okay, so, you know, peer review is completely broken. Well, well, not quite. You know, I think these are extreme cases that for the most part, peer review is, is, is functioning, functioning fairly well. I mean, I think peer review functions much better in, you know, in physics, chemistry, biology than it does in medicine mm. because, because you just have so many people who are conflicted they're all tangled up with the pharmaceutical companies. So when you've got the peer reviewers who are themselves on the payrolls for the pharmaceutical companies, and then how do you ever find anybody who's completely independent? There are a handful of medical journals that do not accept pharmaceutical funding. No advertising, no reprint, no open access fees, nothing. And they pride themselves in that. One of them is PLOS Medicine, PLOS Medicine. Mm. The other one is the International Journal of Risk and Safety in Medicine in the Netherlands. Um, there are a few others, but th those are two good examples. Um, now, in that case, you know, I think the, the peer review process um, and um, the actual publications have, in my mind, more reliability. Yeah. Lehman has been an absolute pleasure chatting to you. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure being with you today. Yes, I hope that you have a great weekend. You're, you're, you're only about to start your weekend, aren't you? Yeah, I'm going surfing. Surfing? Oh, of course you are. You're in California. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, Lehman. Thank you so much. Cheers. Bye-bye. My name is Jim. This is Jim Warfare. The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.